and welcome on this long weekend, this July 4th weekend. For those who are Canadian, like myself, happy Canada Day a couple days ago. Uh, but July 4th is y'all's day, so tomorrow. Um, I will also still be having the traditional uh, American, um, American fare, which I guess is burgers and hot dogs. So, you know, we like share Thanksgiving and Fourth of July and all those things, the same kind of food. It's all good. Um, but today we are continuing our series on parables. Parables are stories, and through this whole series, we're going to be tracking parables through the book of Luke. Lots of parables that happen. If you were with us last week, um, our first parable actually began in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. And so we, we sometimes think parables are only the things that Jesus says, but really it's a form that exists all through the Bible, and some of the first parables are in the Old Testament. Um, we started there just as an intro to bring us to this spot. How do stories engage us? How do we find our lives in the lives of these parables through Luke? So last, last week, Jack, he began with a quote from Amy Jo Levine. She's a Jewish scholar. She's at Vanderbilt. And she says this, as we read parables today, we might think less about what they mean and more about what they can do. As we read parables today, we might think less about what they mean and more about what they can do. That's a great word for us to just be reminded that these stories that we have in the text, told to us by Jesus, they frame out something. They describe um, a response, not to just a story, but they describe a response of people to a word that's preached, and it invites us to sit in the same way. You know, sometimes when we look at parables, we preach the story, the parable that Jesus spoke, which is good, but then we miss all of the story that happens around it. Uh, A friend used to say it this way. He's like, I know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but sometimes when we preach the stories, we miss that, and Jesus, his words get in the way of the formation that's happening that he's trying to bring about in the story. And so as we look at our parable today, I want us to be uh, recognizing that there is a parable nestled here that's instructive, that teaches, but then how does what happens in the reception of it, what evokes it, what happens in the formation of people after it, that's part of the story as well. Let's dive into the full story as we go. Um, There's this uh, science fiction writer, American science fiction writer, Brian Sanderson. And so he's not Christian. He's not Jewish. But he says this about stories in themselves. He says, the purpose of a storyteller is not to tell you how to think, but to give you questions to think upon. And not to tell you how to think, but give you questions to think upon. That's very much like Amy Jo Levine, who would also say, reducing parables to a single meaning will destroy their aesthetic and ethical potential. What are these people saying? One is Jewish, one's an atheist, one writes science fiction, one is a teacher of theology and religion, and we're 
sitting in a Christian church today looking at these stories, what's this inviting us into? It's inviting us into this recognition that regardless of your faith tradition, story has always been something that serves as an invitation or a portal to a different world, to envisioning a different world, to a kind of transformation. And so with that in mind, let us look at our text from today. It's from Luke 7, verse 36 through 50. And we're going to be reading from the NIV this morning. When one of the Pharisees invited, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is a story nestled within a story, nestled within a bigger story. It's kind of like those Russian egg dolls, right, where you have one inside another, inside another, inside another. This happens all with this story. Now, the story we're probably most familiar with, the portion is the focus on the pouring of perfume. Right? Oftentimes, this is one of those stories that shows up in all four Gospels in unique ways, but it shows up in, uh, in all four Gospels. So when that happens, when you see a story that shows up across the scope, across four books, a question for you and for us to think about is, 
What's unique about this story? If this story is being told from a unique perspective, we have it four times, it's obviously important, but what's unique about this rendering, about this telling of the story? The story itself, the story itself, again, plays into what the goal of parables is. And that's this. The goal of a parable is an invitation to transformation from information delivered through the text, through the story. This is what the story is trying to do in us. So from that word that Jack gave us last week, focusing on what happens, what these stories can do in our lives, this is what's happening for us today. An invitation to transformation. An invitation to transformation. As we read that passage, I want to invite you, amongst ourselves, to discuss this key question, and then we'll unpack a little bit more. But as we think about the invitation to transformation, what's happening in the story? The story, not just the parable that's told, but the broader story, everything that's happening. Reflect on these two questions. One, how does this passage, passage speak to you? Two, in one or two sentences, describe what you take away from the story. Okay, so we're going to do this about five minutes in groups, and then we'll regroup and press into the wisdom of the body here. Okay, so in groups, let's break. We'll have about five minutes. Um, these are our two questions. Let's go, and then I'll bring us all back together. Partner up in groups of three to five to six to what feels like a good group. But we have five minutes. Go. Yeah, so a deep dive there, pulling from art history. Christie's highlighting how in art history, if you look at any of the renderings, the, Jesus is always reclining and the woman is either beside or in front of him. The text is continually saying she's behind him. And what's happening in the language, the text, what's happening in even the positioning that happens within the story, within what the, uh, the author's trying to place in terms of what you see and can't see? A read about this story is that in this story, as they're sitting, they're sitting in a form called, um, oh, I just lost it. It's the try something. I'm sorry. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to find it. But they're sitting in a form that looks like a U, essentially, right? That's the, where their tables are set up. That's how, they, that's how they sit. Those are dining customs. And when you're in those dining customs, one way to read this story and this parable is to blow it up and say, this is a foretaste of what would happen in a synagogue discussion meeting, right? In that kind of form where you're sitting with others, you're talking about uh, ideas, you're talking about theology, you're ruminating on the things of the church, the things of God. And so in that reading of the story, when place matters, what happens is you see embedded in the text a, a, a contrast of the ivory tower and the life outside the ivory tower. You have a contrast of Jesus talking with religious elite in their own home, right? So this is what they do all day. 
And the question is, in your house, even if Jesus is at your table, what scandalizes you? Like, what is the thing that you get up in arms about when Jesus is sitting at your table? You might commune with him. You might fellowship with him. You might know him in immense ways. You might be sharing hospitality with him, but does that make you hospitable to people that transgress your religious structure? Now, there's a question. That's how the story's reading us. What do we do when we fellowship with Jesus? He's sitting at our table, and we're scandalized by those outside the table, those who might not be able to be there, those who shouldn't be there. Just sit with that question. Place in this story matters immensely. Thank you, Christy. Thank you, Bill. It's rich. Other thoughts? Things that stuck out to you as you're reading it, as you're engaging it? When you think about the anointing of perfume, head on, or oil on the head, an interesting note, right, is for those who have grown up in church for a long time, we probably make that connection to Jesus being prepared for his crucifixion and burial, right? So it's like, it's an anointing of the body before death. It's a foretelling of what is to come of the death Jesus is to receive. So there's ways to read this story that cause us, that form within us, the recognition that Jesus is messianic, that he's Messiah, that he matters and his death will matter, that his life ultimately after death will matter. And it matters precisely in that it takes all of Israel's story, and in the taking of that story, it brings it to termination, to finish. Brings it to um, a moment where we no longer have to continually sacrifice at the temple because in this messianic reading, Jesus anointed, prepared the body, prepared in his death and resurrection, take that moment and say, no more. Not necessary. So there's a way to read this story that presses into that thread, the thread of Messiah, the story within Israel's story, broader story. Another way to look at this is to take the story and look at the way that honor and shame and hospitality all tie together. So notice what he says to Simon. He says to Simon, this woman is a stranger in your own home. She's not invited into your home. You didn't invite her. And she has been more hospitable to me in these moments than you have, even though we're sharing table together. Right? So at the end of the story, he's pointing out, he's saying, listen, she welcomed me. She, uh, she has been loving on me. The idea of greet each other with a holy kiss in passing. If you go to Europe or other places of the country, that's still a thing, Right? Um, where that's a way of greeting, that's a way of passing hospitality, of welcoming. This is all present in the story. And so another way to focus, uh, a way to 
take this story and say, what does it form within us? It's a question of how hospitable are you to people who might embody the fullness of God? What does hospitality look like when you offer it fully to Christ and then to those who Christ calls friend and those who he says, you are forgiven? The richness of the story is just unpacking and unpacking. It's striking that in our story, only Luke has Jesus eating at the house of a Pharisee. He's the only one. It doesn't happen other places. And only Luke includes the internal dialogue for the Pharisee. So this happens internally dialogue of um, people five or six times throughout Luke. Strikingly, we don't get any internal dialogue for Jesus. We never know what he thinks in the story. But in this story, we have someone who knows the law since his birth. Someone who is trained and schooled. Someone who's also sharing communion, literally, the table, with Jesus. And in this moment, with all of his background, with all of the people around him, we hear his internal dialogue that says, how can it be that Jesus might be a prophet? Because he associates with people like that. You hearing the power of the internal dialogue? question for us is, have we ever thought that? How could it be? How could it be that Jesus is at work in this person's life? That person is running the opposite direction. How can it be? The striking thing is right before this story in the chapter, remember we talked about the story within the story within the story. Jesus has just said, this is how you know the Messiah has come. Remember, John the Baptist, his followers come to him and they say, are you the Messiah or not? Tell us plainly. Are you the Messiah? Or are you just another prophet? You know what Jesus says? He says, this is how you know. This is how you know that I I'm legit. This is how you know that I'm real. This is how you know the Messiah will be present among you. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That's the criteria he gives right before. He says, you want to know how you know that Jesus, the Messiah, is really the Messiah? Because these things happen. Not something we talk about around the table. Not something we talk about in the religious halls of the temple, you know that Jesus 
is amongst you when you see these things happening. And then later on, he continues and says to his disciples that people criticized John the Baptist. They said he has a demon because of the things he's saying. And then Jesus also says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you're going to say, or folks are going to say, criticism is going to say, well, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, a friend of sinners. And he finishes this whole section right before he goes into this encounter with the Pharisee and says, but wisdom is always proved right by her children. By the way that goodness manifests in the embodied lives of people around us, from youngest to oldest, that is how you know Christ is present. So in this story, in this parable, as it reads us, those questions that continue to come back, like, what do you do when scandal keeps you from Jesus? What do you do when we don't know how to respond to God's work at work in places we don't think should work? What do we do with that? The irony of this parable is, as Jesus is teaching, he's describing two debtors. And then in the telling of this story, you have two people. And one thinks that he's an equal to Jesus, or at least he's done enough to sit at a level table with Jesus. Now, there's still reverence. He still says, teacher, tell me. I want to listen to you. You've commanded my respect. But he doesn't recognize that his debt might be bigger than what he's able to recognize, what he's able to see. So Jesus tells this story about two parables, or about two debtors. Might it be that those two debtors are present in the rest of the story? We have this woman who recognizes something has happened. And here's the most heartbreaking thing about the story. The Pharisee tells Jesus before all about what this woman has gone through. He can name the sin, but he's also not going to name the situation, the, the circumstances that make it possible for her to have to engage in this space. There's lots of thought about what this woman did, what she's guilty of, what, um, what some scholars will say is there's a tie to um, different occupations. What some other scholars will say that there's a tie in there of like uncleanliness and just breaking of order. Right? Regardless of how you read her story, what we see is in the life of the Pharisee, someone who is more concerned with the order of his faith than the way that his faith presses him out 
of his order. And so Jesus is always doing this to us. His stories, they invite us to a kind of question, transformation. How might I embody the fullness of God in the world today? How might I do that in ever more faithful ways? That first question, or that first uh, statement we have from Amy Jill Levine, don't let this, sto- this story be reduced to one meaning. When you do that, you lose all of its aesthetic and ethical purpose. We have read this story in three different ways with details that highlight, in unique ways, how it happened. You'll notice that in our form today of engaging this story, it hasn't been linear for us. It hasn't been your three points through this text. Part, partly that's intentional because of the way that this story in Jesus teaches. You know what the most common response to Jesus' teaching was? Who is this? It's a response of fear, or how could he say that? Something so crazy. Like, we like to posture Jesus as a clear, concise teacher when the most common response to his teaching was, what? (laughs) Pardon me? And this is the people who are close to him and also people who are opposition to him. But in the teaching, Jesus is a radically good teacher. His teaching lands on us in unique ways because we're all going through different things. The power of the gospel is that it can cut through all of that noise and meet us, meet us exactly where we are. Because ultimately, this is where we land. Truth is a person. Truth is Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Sometimes, our focus can be on talk about God. But we looked at earlier, a couple weeks ago, that we are called to talk to God. Now, some of you weren't, weren't in the room for that, but we went through Psalm 23. And in Psalm 23, it begins, the Lord is my shepherd, right? goes through. And it begins with talking, uh, talking about God. Right? It's descriptive. It's third person. He, this is, this is who God is. And then it shifts to talking to God. So it starts with talking about God, then it shifts to talking to God. You make me lie down in great pastures. Right? Uh, you restore my soul. But at the end of the story, what we're pressed into, what we're supposed to press into is talking like God. At the end, it says, now you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. The image starts with a shepherd. It ends with him being a sheep, slaughtered, the paschal lamb, for the nourishment of the nations. In that read from talking about God to talking like God to talking to God, this story does the same thing. How might we live like Jesus? Not live about Jesus. Not discuss who Jesus might be or could be, who the Messiah could be or might be, what prophethood might look like. He gives the definition earlier. 
But this story centers us to say, how might we live like God? One who both receives the grace to have your sins forgiven and at the same time lives in a way that challenges us to say, how do the ways you envision God get scandalized by the world around you? And what are you going to do with that? And so as we close here, again, I recognize that this doesn't have the, here's your application step. Part of the intention is that is, Jesus didn't do that either. But I want us to sit with the story this week. And as we go through this series, allow us to sit with these parables. We're going to look at a bunch of parables through the rest of the, uh, rest of the series. We're going to look at them one way, and then we're going to turn it and look at it through a different angle. And as we do that, we're going to find that our lives show up in this story in surprising ways. I'm excited to share a bunch of the other parables with us. But in this one, as we land here, receive this prayer and let us set our posture as we go into a a July 4th weekend, but then also the rest of the week. There are so many things that we might feel um, unstable on destabilized. May we be able to look at the world around us, just like we look at these parables, and find how God speaks to us through every angle and facet in unique ways. Receive this prayer. God, we are grateful for the gift of this day. We're grateful for this way that you meet us in our need, and you also meet us in our desires. We pray that we might be sensitive to how you speak to us in surprising ways, through surprising people, through ways that, as you cause us to grow, challenge how we hold faith and challenge us to discover the fullness of who you are. We pray that your spirit would be with us this week as we go about our week through small tasks and big tasks, that you would invite us to transformation. May we come to know you over this next series in ways that go beyond information. Form us into your image. We desire to know you more. And not just know about you, but to know you. Make us hospitable people, Lord. This is our prayer. As we enter time with friends and family, be near to us today. We pray this with Christ by the Spirit. Everyone said amen.